Support for the Source podcast comes from UT Health San Antonio, South Texas' largest academic research institution, where what is discovered in its labs translates into life-changing patient care. More at groundbreakingresearch.org. Live from the John L. Santico studio, this is The Source from Texas Public Radio. I'm David Martin Davies. The video clips from the border are shocking. Thousands of people lining up after crossing the Rio Grande into Texas. Most of these people are from Central America or from Venezuela. They are fleeing homelands that are in crisis and they're asking to be allowed to live and work in America. Uh, The right is calling this an invasion. There's disagreement on the use of that term, but there is something that everyone does agree on, that this nation's immigration system is broken. The immigration laws that are in place are outdated, and we're seeing today in Washington, D.C., that any attempts to update the law, that's too politically radioactive, and it just doesn't pass. So how did we get here? Why is immigration so misunderstood by the American people? And is this situation only going to get worse? New Yorker staff writer Jonathan Blitzer says the crisis is particularly uh, the results of decades of American policy. His new book is called Everyone who is gone is here. And Jonathan Blitzer, welcome to The Source. Thanks for having me. Well, help me unpack the title. I'm sure there's a lot there, so it'll help people understand what it is that you mean. Everyone who is gone is here. What's what's that mean? Yeah, th- there are two meanings. Uh, the kind of general meaning is that, you know, the, the region I'm writing about and the time period I'm writing about, so, you know, basically the 1980s to the present moment and the United States and Central America Um, It's a world where the U.S. and the region are tied so deeply together. Uh, Migration is such a fact of life for the region that you have in many instances a country like El Salvador, say, where at a certain point a quarter of Salvadorans were living in the United States. Now it's, you know, a significant portion of their population. And so these worlds are kind of bound together. Uh, And so the idea is that, you know, everyone is affected by immigration in some form or another, even those who stay home in their home countries and who receive remittances and, and financial support from family members, relatives, et cetera, who live in the United States. So that's the general sense. Uh, but then the phrase it, itself is a specific um, line that uh, the main character of the book, uh, a man named Juan Ramagosa, told me. Uh, he was a Salvadoran doctor who had been brutally t- tortured by the National Guard in El Salvador in 1980, ended up escaping, moving to Mexico, where he recuperated, and also helped Guatemalan migrants escape their civil war in Guatemala and reach the U.S. border. He eventually comes to the United States himself, becomes a community leader, a public health uh, leader, both in San Francisco and later in Washington, D.C., and in the early 2000s ends up becoming the lead plaintiff in a really significant human rights case in a court in Florida, where two Salvadoran generals who had been allies of the United States during the country's civil war in the 1980s had been living. They'd been relocated to the United States thanks to the State Department and the CIA. Um, but they were you know, guilty of war crimes, essentially. And there was a human rights trial in a civil court in Florida. Juan was the lead plaintiff and witness in the case. And while he was testifying at a certain point, he was asked by the jury to, to, to bear his scars, to show what he had suffered. And I asked him, you know, while he was in that incredibly poignant personal moment in front of this jury, you know, what it was he was thinking about. And he was thinking about all of the people who didn't survive, who didn't even have scars to, sh- to show for what they had suffered. 
And so the phrase he used was that at that moment in time, while he was in that courtroom in front of the jury, everyone who is gone is here with him. We're taking the long view on immigration, uh, what's happening with migration on the southern border, the laws that have been put in place, policies, uh, what's worked and what hasn't, what, what are some of the policies that have made things even worse. You can call in with your questions and comments, 833-877-8255, 833-TPR-TALK. Uh, you have a question or a comment for Jonathan Blitzer, staff writer for The New Yorker. Uh, his new book is called Everyone Who Was Gone Is Here about uh, immigration. So you really take the long view. You look at laws, uh, policies, uh, go back uh, like a century uh, into how, uh, to, to where we are today. I mean, how is it that people who are crossing the border today uh, are somehow connected to anti-communist policies of, of, the, of the United States? Well, the key, the key moment at the center of my book that kind of sets this story in motion uh, is 1980. And in 1980, there are two broad things that are happening in American political life. Uh, one is that the U.S. government passes what's called the 1980 Refugee Act, which is the first time in American history that the government codifies uh, refugee and asylum law uh, into an American statute. Uh, at that point in time, other governments across the world had these policies in place. The U.S. was the outlier and, and finally brought itself into accord with international law at that moment in time. And the idea was that rather than responding on an ad hoc basis to international crises and emergencies and, and, and resettling people um, who were fleeing war zones or calamities of some sort into the U.S. in a kind of haphazard way, this law created actual kind of infrastructure and, and, and legal rights for people, both who were resettled in the U.S. as refugees and or who showed up at the southern border to seek asylum. So you have this law on the one hand, and on the other, you have the U.S. government engaged in the Cold War, I mean, obviously all over the world, but specifically in Latin America. Um, and so one of the things the U.S. government was doing during this time, in Central America specifically, there were two major civil wars, one in El Salvador and one in Guatemala. And the U.S. government was involved supporting the right-wing military governments in these countries. Um, the idea, of course, was that the U.S. government was scared, about the, uh, scared of the spread of communism, the spread of leftism. And these governments, even though they had committed you know, horrible human rights atrocities, had at least vowed to fight communism, and therefore the U.S. was willing to look the other way on a lot of their abuses. Um, and so you had these two crises kind of coming together at the same time. You had, you know, uh, everything that's going on in the region, the U.S. contributing to more and more people being uprooted, and they're arriving at the southern border. And for the first time, really, you have a, a new policy on the books that's meant to deal with a population that deserved legal protection. Um, and, and the infrastructure of those laws, basically, um, is the same one we have now. And it's not really been updated since then. And so part of the book is, is, is aimed at, I mean, it, at the center of the book are personal stories, the stories of individual people. This is not a, uh, a kind of like a wonky sort of legal history. This is to show exactly how human lives are shaped by decisions made in Washington. But basically what you have over time is you have um, the U.S. government for geopolitical reasons subverting the letter of the asylum law that existed in 1980. So, for example, discriminating against Salvadorans and Guatemalans who were seeking asylum because the U.S. government couldn't acknowledge publicly that their governments were repressing them because their governments were, an Amer were American allies. Um, and over time, 
when a system like this is manipulated for political reasons and it's starved of resources and money and attention, there are kind of certain fissures and cracks that form in the institutions themselves. And over the you know, following few decades, as the migration issue shifts and grows more complex and as more and more people show up at the southern border to seek asylum, um, the government was never really prepared to deal with what that meant administratively, legally, or, or even, even really morally. We're speaking with Jonathan Blitzer, staff writer at The New Yorker. Uh, his new book is Everyone Who Was Gone Is Here about the immigration crisis in America and how we, uh, what policies led us to uh, this moment. And we know this is a top issue in our election cycle. You can call in with your questions and comments. The number is 833-877-8255, 833-TPR-TALKS. And it's an email to the source at tpr.org. And the source will be back in 60 seconds. Stay tuned. Support for this podcast comes from Big Sun Solar, committed to helping businesses strive towards energy independence and conservation. Solar is a great way for businesses to lower their carbon footprint. More at BigSunSolar.com TPR. This is The Source on Texas Public Radio. I'm David Martin Davies. The headlines tell the story of what's uh, happening in America. We have the MAGA convoy in Eagle Pass over the weekend. Uh, we have a, a constitutional challenge by Texas Governor Greg Abbott saying that the state has supremacy over the federal government, over over the border and over razor wire and the buoys in the river. Uh, Republican-controlled House is trying to impeach Homeland Security Mayorkas over, they say that he has uh, not been doing his job, not following the law for immigration. And we have a Senate bipartisan bill that would tweak, update immigration laws uh, that's being celebrated is like, this is a great thing. And now it's dead on arrival in, in the House because of politics. Why is immigration so broken in America? If you've got a question or a comment, give us a call, 833-877-8255, 833-TPR-TALK. Uh, Jonathan Blitzer is with us. His book is about this. Everyone who is gone is here. So, um, why is it so hard to get anything done to make progress on improving uh, the immigration system, Jonathan? You know, when you look back in history uh, at, at, at big reform efforts in the past, and, and you know, sadly, uh, for the second half of the 20th century, there are very few to look toward. But, you know, one key moment was in 1986. Um, another was in 1990. Uh, and then that's it. But basically, each time there are so many different kind of political constituencies that have a, a real vested interest in how this issue plays out, that it's extremely hard for either political party, historically both parties have struggled with this, with this to kind of find a line that, you know, goes right down the middle of their constituencies uh, that allows them to kind of split the difference. I mean, there are business interests that are brought to bear on this. There are moral and political interests that are brought to bear on this. There are demographic dimensions to this. But, but to my mind, in terms of understanding our, our present predicament, um, I think it's important to look to the last time there was a serious comprehensive immigration reform bill in Congress, and that was 2013. And in 2013, you know, you had a few interesting things happening in the country. First of all, 
um, Barack Obama just beat Mitt Romney in the election in 2012. And the kind of consensus among mainstream Democrats and mainstream Republicans was that one of the reasons Romney lost was that he ran way too far to the right. And that specifically on immigration and on immigration enforcement, he alienated too many voters. And so for the first time in a long time, you were seeing in kind of the establishment circles of the Republican Party an interest in passing some sort of bipartisan reform effort. Obviously, that was a priority for the Obama White House. Uh, And in 2013, in the summer of 2013, uh, the Senate passed a bipartisan bill um, that was quite ambitious and far-reaching and very, very significant. Um, it should be said that the measures we're talking about right now, just so listeners have a sense of the contrast, are much narrower than the terms of that 2013 bill. I mean, o- over the years, as the po- politics have gotten more and more toxic, the negotiating space has gotten smaller and smaller. But in 2013, you were talking about a major far-reaching reform effort. And it was you know, basically never brought to a vote in the Republican-controlled House. Uh, And so at that moment in time, you were beginning to see populist elements inside the Republican Party pushing back against those those reform efforts. Uh, And then that kind of coincides with something we started to see at the southern border, where in 2014, the spring of 2014, you had thousands, tens of thousands of Central American children and families showing up at the border seeking asylum, really overwhelming resources at the border. And that, of course, became a kind of pretext for more obstruction uh, in terms of comprehensive immigration reform. You had opponents of the reform effort saying, look, how can we talk about reforming the system if we can't even secure the border? Which, by the way, is a trope in the politics around this going back many decades. Um, And over time, you know, this issue gets more and more intractable. And then when you have Donald Trump arrive on the scene in 2015, 2016, he's really the first he's the first mainstream political candidate who campaigns, you know, explicitly on immigration. That was his main issue. In the past, candidates shied away from it because it was so divisive in their respective parties. He really tried to capitalize on the fact that it was an issue that made everyone angry um, and, and that kind of led to all sorts of resentments across the political spectrum. And once the bottom fell out, once it became clear that he could game out those resentments in the electorate and, and, and succeed – you know, running a campaign on those resentments, um, it became very, very hard for the Republican Party to do anything but kind of continue that message of his. And the Democrats, of course, over time, because there was less space for them to negotiate with Republicans, move increasingly to the left on this issue. And so the result is you just have the sides moving farther and farther apart. And all the while, the phenomenon in the world and at the southern border gets more and more complex. I mean, we're living right now. This is a a phenomenon that is much bigger than the United States. We are living in the moment of the greatest mass movement of people since the Second World War. That's happening regardless of who is in Washington, of who's in the White House. So it's kind of a perfect storm. Let's go to a caller. The number to call in is 833-877-8255. If you've got a question for our guest, Jonathan Blitzer, his book is Everyone Who Is Gone Is Here. We have Viola on the line. And Viola, you're on the air. Yes. um, Thank you for having your speaker. I think I want to buy that book immediately. I live in Laredo, Texas, and I'm 72 years old, um, right on the border, and uh, have never felt any fear of my community or even being downtown to pay taxes in person. (laughs) But so 
I, I don't understand the quandary. Many of the people here, especially young women, young mothers have been able to go to college and they hire immigrants as nannies, babysitters, housekeepers. So the whole entire community has reaped the benefits of the immigrant laborers. Um, but like I said, I've never had a threat and I'm, I've lived here for a long, long time. Um, I'm a professional, my husband is a professional, uh, but we don't ever feel threatened by the immigrants. So I think most of them come to seek work. All right, Viola, thank you so much for your call. We appreciate that. Uh, Jonathan Blitzer, what's your reaction? No, I so appreciate you saying that, Viola. Thank, thanks for, for, for sharing that. I mean, you know, for me, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not from the borderlands myself. Um, but over the years, as I've done this reporting, I have to say it's been a real education for me to see how and, and, and of course, it'll it'll strike you as almost being funny because it's so obvious to you. This is your just sort of day to day reality. But I was always so struck by the degree to which the 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 border itself was a place of a great deal of inclusion and openness um, and kind of, you know, general comedy among, you know, newcomers and people from the community, a real sense of kind of camaraderie and understanding. Um, and that often, you know, the kind of these fearsome images we hear about the border where the things that, you know, voters are told to be scared of are whipped up far from the border. Uh, and the border ends up being used as a prop in this broader drama. Uh, it's a drama that's largely staged from Washington or from, you know, remoter places. So it's very it's really valuable for me to hear you say that. And, and I so I so appreciate the comment. Jonathan, when um, I used to go to Mexico in the 1980s and and uh, hang out and uh, talk to people down there and cab drivers, uh, they would tell me you know, almost everyone, uh, all the adult males had spent time in the United States uh, working for a while. They made their stake and then they would go back to Mexico and they bought their cab or they, you know, bought a house. They did things like that. It was more of a, they would come to the United States for a little while and then go back and carry on their lives. But I think it was with the, in the 90s, with the passage of the IRA, IRA, that we started to harden the border. That was not as, as, as uh, convenient or possible anymore. It ended the era of the mom and pop uh, coyotes that would help you across. It allowed the cartels to take hold of the border. Uh, these were policies that were put in place to try to deter people from coming across. But instead, uh, this I think it had just the opposite impact. I mean, I, I, I so appreciate your mentioning that particular law. I mean, that law in 1996 was a real watershed moment, to, to, to my mind, in how this issue played out for exactly the reasons you say. Um, you know, one of the specific things that this law did, I mean, there were a few things, you're familiar with it, but just, just for sort of general context for listeners, um, the law made basically increased all of these punishments um, to try to, uh, you know, make the government act much more harshly toward immigrants who both had legal status and who were undocumented. And so one of the provisions, and, and actually this affects one of the main characters in the book, affected people who had green cards, who could retroactively be stripped of their legal status if they were if they were convicted of uh, any list of a number of crimes, some of which were quite minor. Uh, the point being, this was very very punitive, and there was another policy, and, and this gets to the, I think the heart of your comment, uh, that basically said if you had ever uh, let your immigration status in the U.S. lapse, whether you you know cross the border 
uh, illegally or you crossed the border on a tourist visa, say, and overstayed the visa or came on any other sort of visa and for whatever reason, personal, bureaucratic, whatever, uh, that that visa lapsed, uh, you would be basically under the terms of this law barred from the country. You could not normalize your status. You'd have to leave the country for between five and 10 years, depending on how long your status had, had, had lapsed while you were living in the United States. And so what this did was it froze a population in place that had been engaging, exactly as you're saying, in a sort of circular migration pattern where people came and went. Um, they, the benefits of their you know, living and working in the U.S. seasonally uh, basically accrued in their home communities, whether they, that was in Mexico or elsewhere in Central America. Um, and suddenly you had a population that couldn't leave because if they did, they wouldn't be allowed back in under the terms of this law. And so you know, we talk about the fact, for instance, that there are 11 plus million people in the United States who are undocumented, that population specifically exploded as a result of this 1996 law. Um, so, you know, this is the, the, the kind of legacy of some of these punitive measures that are the result of overheated, you know, national politics that have profound consequences for people. You know, now, uh, you know, one of the key things that you're describing is something that actually is sort of no longer the case demographically, which is the typical profile of someone who shows up at the southern border over the last, you know, say, decade plus um, is no longer uh, a, a Mexican adult crossing looking for work. It's increasingly become, you know, Central Americans or South Americans uh, seeking asylum. But for instance, a lot of these people, you know, some of them are fleeing very specific forms of persecution and, and, and need to have asylum. It's the only form of protection that that the government can extend to them. But some of them are fleeing poverty. Some of them are fleeing collapsing economies, you know, uh, governments that are totally corrupt, that leave no real life prospects for them at home. Um, if the U.S. could expand forms of legal immigration, I'm even thinking simply like, you know, uh, temporary worker visas, you could start to create a situation like the one you describe, where people come, they live and work in the U.S. for a period of time, they return home, the money they make and send home helps enrich their communities abroad. And there's a kind of symbiosis rather than this stark divide. But again, because there is no political possibility of even negotiating these bare bones kinds of visa policies, uh, we're kind of stuck in place. It does seem like the situation is just going to get worse uh, south of the border. Uh, climate change, uh, political trouble, uh, it just seems... Being able to like build a wall and say we're not going to allow people in no matter what, and having uh, Governor Abbott joking about shooting people, uh, it seems like there's just going to be a continued escalation rather than trying to find a working solution. Well, you know, in the tail end of the Trump years, there were two policies that the federal government adopted at the border that, in a certain sense, put this global population that was there out of sight and out of mind for Americans. You know, one was a policy called Remain in Mexico or the Migrant Protection Protocols. It had two names. Uh, and what that policy did was it basically shunted close to 70,000 asylum seekers into northern Mexico, didn't really give them any protection. Um, they were, you know, staying in, in, in really, you know, squalid encampments along the border in places that were famously dangerous. Uh, and basically they were stuck there waiting for the length of time that it would take for their asylum claim to inch through the backlogged American immigration court system. Um, and 
Also, at the start of the pandemic, you had this policy where the U.S. government started to just expel anyone and everyone who showed up at the southern border without giving them uh, the opportunity, the legal right, to seek asylum. And so, you know, this sort of in terms of political optics, um, one of the things that this did was this has contributed to increased pressure just south of the border. But it's pressure that, you know, everyday Americans aren't following that closely. Right. It does seem like a problem that many Americans really don't understand, yet it is a top issue that they're going to be basing their vote on. Uh, Let's take a break. Uh, The number to call in is 833-877-8255, 833-TPR-TALK. Source continues after this break. Support for TPR comes from the Lawton family of restaurants, Cappies, Cappuccinos, Mama's Cafe, La Fonda on Main, and Jingu House, located in San Antonio. Their diverse menus and hours can be viewed at LawtonRestaurants.com. This is The Source from Texas Public Radio. I'm David Martin Davies. We're talking about immigration policy in the United States. Why is it not working and why can't we fix it? We're joined by Jonathan Blitzer. He's a staff writer at The New Yorker. He has a new book out, taking a long view at these policies and how they impact us today. Everyone who is gone is here. And let's go to a caller, 833-877-8255, 833-TPR-TALK, if you want to join us. And Randall is on the line. And Randall, you're on the air. Hi there. Uh, I heard Mr. Blitzer mention the Immigration Reform and Control Act of 1986 and something else nonspecific around 1990. But what about President Clinton appointing former Texas Congresswoman Barbara Jordan to chair the U.S. Commission on Immigration Reform in 1994? That final report is out there. It's online. It's more than a thousand pages. Jordan testified several times before various congressional subcommittees before her death in early 1996. Uh, There's a whole body of work out there that came from the Clinton administration. Sadly, nothing's ever been done with it. A key component of their plan that has never been followed in earnest by any presidential administration, cracking down hard on businesses, business owners, and managers that hire illegal immigrants under the table and skate on employment taxes and Social Security contributions. All right, Randall, thank you for that. But Barton Jordan, she took a really hard line and said that people who uh, come to the country are not entitled to be able to come in and work. Uh, So Jonathan Blitzer. Yeah, you know, Barbara Jordan, it's, a, it's a, an important historical reference. I mean, Barbara Jordan is an interesting figure because she represents, in a key way, I think, uh, a position that the Democratic Party had, uh, by and large, among centrists especially, uh, in the late 80s, early 90s, which was uh, an interest in expanding legal immigration, um, but a real view that the only way to deal with you know, illegal immigration was to crack down. Um, and I think, you know, the terms have slipped so much since then um, that it's it's hard even to imagine those kinds of like clean delineations that, that once at least notionally existed in our politics, where you'd have a kind of regard for making sure there were ways to come to the United States and live here illegally uh, versus getting tough, say, at the border or beyond. Um, you know, now the main line view uh, on the Republican side of the aisle has increasingly become an opposition to 
legal immigration in all forms. I'm not saying every Republican says says or thinks that, but certainly the standard bearer of the Republican Party, the former president, Donald Trump, it, that is an explicit part of his policy outlook. Uh, and so it's it's hard, you know, that the kind of space that someone like Barbara Jordan inhabited, it, it's hard to imagine uh, kind of someone occupying that zone again, kind of on the level of values or rhetoric or even policy, because the terms on each side of the partisan divide have, have collapsed. Um, but you're right. I mean, a key part to understanding the history that we're living with today is is the presidency of Bill Clinton. Um, you know, nowadays, because Republicans are at the center of the drama, it's sort of easier to cast blame there. But certainly Democrats had their hand uh, in 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 really contributing to uh, very harsh outcomes and and I, I think kind of a lasting legacy uh, that the region at large has had to live through of mass deportations. And so, you know, you had in the Clinton years a couple of things that were really significant in terms of immigration policy, um, not not just the, the, the commission that, that Randall mentions, but you also had, for instance, um, you had uh, welfare reform. And for the first time in a long time, uh, one of the ways that the Clinton administration made welfare reform work was it stripped legal immigrants of benefits, of public benefits that they had access to before. That ended up getting reinstated a few years later, but it showed you the political pressure uh, that the president felt he was under at the time. And then, of course, you had uh, that 1996 act uh, that, that Dave mentioned, where, you know, that was an election year uh, sort of proving ground for the president to show that, listen, we're tough on crime. We're, you know, we're serious about cracking down on immigration. We're not going to be kind of outflanked by Republicans to our right. We're going to occupy this broad center space in the political spectrum. But but now you look at the conversation and there's really no one who sounds like that. And I'm not, I'm not saying that one should aspire to sound like Bill Clinton. You could have different views on that. But I'm just just as an observation about how the, the space has shifted. Um, it's, a, it's amazing how a lot of kind of commonsensical things that were said in in the 90s that Randall mentions uh, are now kind of in, in some ways not even conceivable to people in political office. So also, I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but NAFTA had a big impact on illegal immigration with Mexico. It really wrecked uh, the agricultural industry, the ejido, the small community farms. Uh, were you know just, just obliterated, and large commercial agriculture took over and dislocated uh, many many people, and they had no choice but come to the United States. I think that's I think that's absolutely right. I think that's absolutely right. Let's go to caller. We have Sylvia on the line, and Sylvia, you're on the air. Hello, thank you for taking my call. My question has to do with Venezuela. Um, a, a volunteer hospitality group in San Antonio that I work with gives statistics every month. And I think 40% of the people now coming across, that's a lot of people, are Venezuelan. My question is, I have a dear friend who's Venezuelan. When I ask her why so much, she's lived decades in Venezuela. She said, well, if, if we would lift the sanctions and the economy would begin to have jobs that they could take again, but our sanctions have have uh, created an impossibility for people to to work and, and, and support themselves. And the, what the guest thinks about that. All right, uh, Sylvia, thank you uh, for that call. Uh, Venezuela, of course, uh, you know, it is a, a dictatorship and it's in crisis. Uh, and those people are fleeing and they're, they're ending up on our border, Jonathan? 
Yeah, Sylvia, that's a great question. And honestly, it's one that, that really, I mean, I think I spend a lot of time thinking about it and, it, and it kind of baffles me because there's a lot of complexity to it. Uh, you're right that uh, the, the largest share of, of people right now crossing the southern border are from Venezuela. You know, just to put those numbers in uh, some context over the last several years, you know, going back to, I think, around 2015 or so, you've had, you know, several million uh, millions of Venezuelans fleeing the country. I mean, the country's economy has essentially collapsed. It's an incredibly repressive regime. It's anti-democratic in all of these, you know, over-the-top ways. Um, and, you know, it, it's quite a significant humanitarian disaster. The U.S. government is in kind of a, a interesting bind with, with Venezuela because, on the one hand, there's real political pressure uh, from both Republicans and some Democrats to punish the repressive government of Nicolas Maduro, the, the, the president of the country. Um, of course, one of the consequences of uh, imposing sanctions on the country um, because of the president's dictatorial state is that it affects, you know, everyday Venezuelans. Um, and those sanctions, without question, contribute to the economic immiseration of the country. I think it would be a political scandal in Washington uh, if those sanctions were lifted, you can see, interestingly, the Biden administration has tried in different ways to ease some of those sanctions. And following the kind of the conventional terms of American foreign policy, the way in which the Biden administration has done that is it said stuff like, OK, you have elections in this, you know, this this year. Uh, you if if you open up the voting process, if you allow opposing candidates from other political parties to run for office, uh, we will begin to ease these sanctions, but these sanctions are conditioned on, you know, free and fair elections. And that's a source of real tension. And it seemed for a moment like the Maduro government was willing to play ball. Then it kind of backslid a bit. Um, and, you know, just to give you a sense also of another layer of diplomatic complexity here, and, and I'm sorry, Sylvia, you've asked a great question. I do not have a specific answer to in terms of a solution, but just to kind of detail different facets of the problem. Um, you know, when the U.S. government tries to deport people, um, there is a very specific international operation that that involves. Um, you know, it depends on foreign governments being willing to accept these deportation flights and countries that have historically had poor relations with the United States and have refused to accept these flights have posed actual operational problems for the United States at the border. So Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela is a classic example. Until very recently, these governments would not accept deportation flights. And so the U.S. border authorities uh, were in many cases sort of trapped, I mean, by the logic of how U.S. border authorities operate. Um, and so right now, one of the things you're seeing as the United States has been kind of increasingly severe in its criticisms of the Maduro government about the upcoming elections is the Maduro government has threatened to refuse to accept these deportation flights. So it's a real it's an extremely complex international dance. And I, I you know, I don't know what the immediate solution would be to it, but I think you're absolutely right that the sanctions have a lot to do with with what's going on in the country. And and to be clear, so does, you know, economic mismanagement by the government, uh, repression by the government and all and all the rest. So it's, it's a, a very upsetting, complex situation. And to make matters worse. Venezuela is planning to invade its neighbor Guyana, and the United States is now actively arming Guyana to defend itself. And so things could go um, into a military mode there as well. Yeah, I mean, it's just it, it's it's such a, it's such a 
complex situation. Um, but again, you know, this is and this is one of the things that that's so striking for me covering immigration. You know, you have this all this kind of geopolitical complexity, and we can kind of game it out in different ways. And we can talk about you know military maneuvers and and you know and and Venezuelan oil and sanctions and you know uh, diplomatic policy. But the and, and the Russia's involvement has, there too. Oh, one hundred. I mean, one hundred percent. And yet, you know, the way in which all these factors affect individual lives is just it's so stark and it's, it's really harrowing. Um, and, you know, that, that those are, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking to you from from New York. Um, a lot of asylum seekers have have arrived here uh, in part thanks to the governor of Texas who's been busing them here. Um, but a lot of them are Venezuelan. And you can even hear it on the streets of New York City now. Uh, you hear more Venezuelan Spanish. It's just a fact of life. And people are are, are really trying to the extent that they can to provide for their families under these impossible circumstances. Uh, Venezuelan hot dogs will be now a, a, a thing here in the United States. Um, let's take another break. You've got a question. I'm going to go to Adam when we come back. Uh, the 833-877-8255. Source continues after this. This is The Source on Texas Public Radio. I'm David Martin Davies. Uh, Jonathan Blitzer is with us, staff writer of The New Yorker. His book is Everyone Who Is Gone Is Here. Uh, taking apart uh, um, U.S. immigration policy and uh, how he's looking at individuals, how it's impacted them, because this is about people and policy. Got a question? Give us a call, 833-TPR-TALK. And we have Adam on the line. Adam, you're on the air. Thank you, Mr. Davies. Uh, my question is to Mr. Blazer. Um, fully, being fully aware of the geopolitical complexity around the world, um, at one time, the U.S. Getting, initiated a plan in Europe called the Marshall Plan, and then has similar initiatives in places like Korea and Japan. And those economies, those countries have developed into, you know, developed countries with stable economies, and we don't see too much migration happening from those countries. So my question to you, Mr. Blazer, is why has the U.S. not considered those similar policies in places such as South America and some places in Europe or Asia? Because a majority of those um, immigrants are coming from mostly South America because we share border with them, but you also see people coming from places like Africa and maybe some Asian countries. So just would like to get his perspective on why that similar plan didn't get initiated in those areas. Thank you. All right, Adam, thank you for the call. Uh, Jonathan. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a good question. You know, every every few years, and certainly in recent years with, you know, Democratic administration, there's a lot of talk about addressing root causes of emigration. Um, and, you know, this is something we saw toward the tail end of the Obama administration uh, in around, you know, 2015, 2016, after that sudden spike of arrivals of Central Americans at the southern border, uh, a, a regional initiative that was called the Alliance for Prosperity it was, you know, something like, you know, 700 plus million dollars spread over uh, the countries of the northern triangle of Central America. The idea being specifically, as you're saying, you know, if if we want to try to improve conditions in the region, the way to do that is to invest, to, you know, lead good government initiatives to help, um, you know, uh, create preparedness for climate change, create jobs and so on. Um, you know, the problem to my mind is, you know, in a political sense, it's very hard to sustain that kind of outlay of aid in, you know, in the American political system right now. Um, you, you have on, on the Democratic side, I think, a willingness to explore that option, um, but not the kind of political will 
um, just given the partisan attacks that Democrats face these days, to really push uh, and to kind of increase the price tag on, on some of these aid initiatives, which I think would, would be what's necessary for it to have a meaningful impact. Uh, and I also think that there's a real swing now where there isn't continuity from one administration, one American administration to the next. So that also makes this harder because the kinds of initiatives you're describing, which are you know, wholly necessary if, if there's an actual meaningful good faith interest in um, you know, improving conditions in the world um, and kind of controlling migration as a result, you know, this is something that's going to take years. This is going to take more than four years, for one thing. Um, and so it's hard to have the kind of continuity of, of approach um, when you have things swing so wildly in Washington from one party to the next and where one party will do something and then the next as just a matter of course will reverse it all. Um, and, you know, there's one complicated wrinkle in it. Um, and this is like maybe a little bit wonky and a little bit academic. But, um, you know, one of the ironies, too, of aid in the region um, is that sometimes, you, you know, the, infusing some degree of money without necessarily improving infrastructure, say, or dealing with, you know, kind of holistic approaches to, you know, fighting corruption or responding to climate change or, you know, uh, all, all of those sorts of things is, you know, more money sort of sloshing around in the region sometimes makes it easier for certain people to emigrate because that's the difference between their being stuck at home and their having the means, say, to pay a smuggler and to make this overland journey. So it's a compli- it's, it's a, you know, that's a small blip in your broader question. But I'm just I'm, j- I'm just sort of identifying the fact that it, it, in practice, it's extremely complicated. And ideally, you'd have you know, lawmakers who are serious enough about dealing with this to tackle it. But but we don't have that. You had the vice president, at, uh, Kamala Harris, at the start of this administration do essentially exactly what Joe Biden had done when he was Obama's vice president, which was to lead an initiative looking at the region. Um, at the time, the region was Central America. Now the situation at the southern border is a much more global phenomenon even than that. Um, and, you know, interestingly, because the politics were so bruising about it, um, when the vice president, when Kamala Harris was asked, you know, all right, so your portfolio involves, you know, immigration. How interesting. She would say, no, 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 my portfolio does not involve immigration. My portfolio involves the Northern Triangle of Central America. <laughs> um, you know, a real kind of interest in making sure that the political toxicity of the immigration question didn't affect the kind of practical imperatives of, you know, international aid and diplomacy. And until we can kind of link those two sides, it's very hard to have a serious conversation about this. Let's go to caller uh, Renee. Uh, Renee, you're on the air. I have to go back to a statement that was made earlier about immigrants receiving benefits. I think it's very important to make sure that the messaging is clear. Undocumented people cannot receive any form of government benefits in the United States. That is still the law. The changes that were made to the Welfare Reform Act over the years might have lessened some of the burdens on the immigrants, legal immigrants, to receive benefits. But there are still time bars. There are still bars relating to how long a person has worked in the country. There's a requirement of at least 10 years of work before any immigrant adult can receive benefits. So the, the messaging in this issue is so very important because it's misinformation that is perpetuated over and over again. Renee, thank you for the call. So I was in Eagle Pass this weekend uh, talking to people in the convoy. Uh, the pro-Trump MAGA anti-immigration convoy. And many of them told me this exact same thing, that the migrants who come across illegally, 
they're getting Social Security, they're getting all this money, they're getting great benefits, and, and why aren't we doing more for our veterans? Uh, so, uh, Jonathan. No, Renee, first of all, thank you. I, you know, that, that's an important, it's extremely important clarification, and it's, that you're, you're absolutely right. Um, yeah, I mean, there's just, yeah, there's so much, there's a lot of misinformation swirling around, and there's a lot of de- deliberate, uh, you know, a, a lot of deliberate efforts to confuse people. Um, I don't, you know, all we can do, as Renee says, is to just make sure the messaging is clear and forceful. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a related issue, too, about taxes. You know, everyone, that, that's the other kind of like the, the twin gripe, Dave, that you're describing is, you know, sort of on the one hand, oh, they're receiving all these benefits, these newcomers, and they're not paying any taxes. And that's also not true. Um, but it's just, you know, the only the only way to um, to kind of correct these misperceptions is to not be scared to correct these misperceptions. And that that's incumbent on, you know, leaders in public life to really stand up and make this point clear. So there are a lot of misunderstandings, including uh, what is a border, how a border works and what to expect out of a border. We've even heard from Speaker Mike Johnson saying he thinks that the, our border should, no one, not a single person, should be able to get through. Uh, that's, the, that's the deal that he wants. It just shows you that, I mean, there's no border in the world that has that uh, level of uh, integrity, I, I would think. Uh, Jonathan? I mean, it's inc- it's an inc- it's an incredible thing to hear the Speaker of the House say. I mean, it's I mean, if, if I'm being charitable, it's uh, it, it's nonsensical. Um, you know, there's no the, the idea that I mean, the Speaker has said literally that the only kind of policy he would sign on to is a policy that led to zero people coming across the border. I mean, that's just not, that's not, that's a, that's a pipe dream. In a, I mean, to call it a pipe dream is, is again, to be charitable. Um, you know, it's interesting because that, like the, the, some of the figures that Republican congressional opponents of this Senate deal uh, are throwing around are actually figures plucked out of context from the bill itself. So one, one of the talking points you're hearing now is you're hearing congressional Republicans say, oh, look at this. This bill basically allows for 5,000 people to cross the border every single day. The, the place where they're getting that 5,000 number is in the bill, one of the harsher provisions of the bill that says that if 5,000 people cross the border or arrive at the border um, over the span of one week, the president can declare a state of emergency and, quote, unquote, shut the border down. <laughs> now, this leads is, is Dave, to your question, to to another kind of rhetorical flourish now that doesn't really have that much meaning in the world that we live in, uh, which is this idea of shutting down the border. Uh, as, as your listeners know better than most people in the country, that's not a thing. That's not a practical possibility that any government can do. The border is about, you know, 2,000 miles long. Millions of people cross it every day through reports of entry. Businesses transacted. Whole worlds are, are, are kind of intertwined across that border. When public officials now and now that they're kind of like outgunning each other to prove how tough they can be at the southern border, when when we hear them say they're going to shut down the border, what essentially they're talking about is suspending asylum, um, meaning you know, suspending the laws that exist that require the government to hear someone's asylum claim when they arrive at the border seeking protection. That That's what concretely is meant by shutting down the border. And we've seen, you know, we talked about this a little bit earlier that, that policy during the pandemic that the Trump administration set in place and the Biden administration eventually wound down, but was somewhat slow to wind down, Title 42, um, which allowed the government just to summarily expel anyone and everyone who showed up at the southern border without really giving them much of a chance to, to lodge asylum claims. 
the consequence of that was more chaos, not less chaos, because people kept trying to cross. It, it led to the system being overwhelmed. Um, and so, you know, we're, we unfortunately, the, the sort of political discourse is stuck on all of these phrasings and ideas that sound tough. Um, but oftentimes, you know, A, they're not, you know, meaningful ideas, and, and B, um, they're counterproductive ideas. So sometimes the, the toughest sounding thing isn't the most practical. Jonathan Blitzer is a staff writer for The New Yorker, but the, the toughest sounding things can get you elected. I need to get, need to get back to that. So, and that's why they say it. True. Uh, and he's, uh, yeah. his book is Everyone Who Is Gone Is Here. It was great talking to you, Jonathan. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. And this is The Source on Texas Public Radio. I'm David Martin Davies. Thanks for listening. This has been The Source on Texas Public Radio. The Source is hosted and produced by David Martin Davies. Kayla Padilla is our booking and engagement producer. Engineering support from Ruben Garcia, Jesse Reeves, and Steve Short. Dan Katz is TPR's Vice President of News. The Source is made possible with support from the Gladys and Ralph Lazarus Foundation. 